You're listening to the EFCA Theology Podcast, which exists to help pastors and church leaders stay passionate about the gospel and faithful to the scriptures. Let me say a word about our first speaker. Jarvis Williams is Associate Professor of New Testament Interpretation at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I have learned much from him and his writings. I've appreciated his biblical groundedness, his ironic spirit, and his commitment to do all that the scriptures say. Here, he will focus on the biblical and theological foundation of Christian living, of the organic connection between justification and sanctification that is foundational for the rest of the conference. As we ponder racial matters, what stains has racism left on the church in America? It's one of the books that Jarvis recently wrote. What impact has the majority voice had on evangelicalism? What does it truly mean that God, through the work of Christ, has created one new humanity? And how is that new creation lived out and manifested? Reconciliation with God bears fruit in reconciliation with one another, which results in being ambassadors of reconciliation. These are gospel issues. I am thankful Jarvis is here. Before he comes, Alex, I'd like for you to come, and I would like for you to pray for Jarvis as he brings this word. Father, uh, Greg has well framed the matter before us, and I know, Lord, that each speaker has been prayed for over through around the topic and now Lord we come to that time so father I pray one thing for my brother freedom 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 to flow in that river that you have made the way you've made him the person you have made him the equipping and training that you have made him for our sake for this day for our sake Not, Lord, that we might know more, but that, Father, we could become transformed if we hope to transform others. So, Lord, tonight, I pray that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit. Release him. And, Father, he's talking uh, in your voice to us. Out of the word, certainly out of the word, but through everything that you've made him, guide him. As Father, he assail uh, to that end. In Jesus' name. Thank you. Jarvis, would you please come and minister to us? Thank you for that very kind invitation and introduction. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. I want to read this passage, and then I want to pray together again and ask God to help us. Let me just say from the outset that this talk will be a combination of a lecture and a sermon, because I'm a professor, but I'm also a preacher. And you can decide which bit is the lecture and which bit is the sermon. So I'm going to raise my voice a little bit. I'm going to spit a little bit. I'm going to hit the podium a little bit. I'm a Southern Baptist, all right? 
That's going to come out tonight. So Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Hear the word of God. It's a very important text. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. I'll argue later that this is an ethnic all. All people without ethnic distinction have sinned. And therefore all must be justified by his grace. As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in this present time, in in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I'm going to read on down to verse, verse 30. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. And hear this ethnic language that is coming. For we hold, verse 28... That one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And here it is. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Feel that. Is he the God of one people or of all people? That's what he's asking. So he says... Is he not also God of the Gentiles? Yes, he's also the God of the Gentiles. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are in need of you right now. We need you to liberate us from the power of sin and death. And by faith in Jesus, your Son bled so that we would be free from our sin. We need you tonight to remind us that you, by your grace, offered your Son to redeem tribes and tongues and peoples and nations so that we would live as redeemed people on earth in anticipation of the new age to come. And we pray that by your Spirit tonight, you would fall on us. You would move us 
to respond to your work for us in Christ to do relentless anti-racist work. So, Father, I pray tonight for your people. Some things I say will sting. Some things I say might arouse anger. But I pray that your spirit will fall and have his way. And God, hold me up. These folks don't need a, an entertaining sermon tonight. They need a robust word from your word. So God, help me to give it to them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In today's Christian culture, discussions about reconciliation are becoming more and more common. Some Christians disagree about the usefulness of the phrase, racial reconciliation, since this phrase, some say, wrongly assumes the need to restore a previously existing relationship between blacks and whites. And that relationship never really existed in the beginning. But regardless of what some may think about the terminology, Bible-believing Christians should gladly embrace the gospel's power to unify all things and all people in Christ. And to unite those people who are alienated from God and from each other into one reconciled community that lives as reconciled friends. By the way, this is a long introduction, so hang with me. (laughs) Unfortunately, many Christians espouse vague pieties about colorblindness, which in my view hinders gospel unity in many different contexts. As you know, colorblindness basically refers to racial neutrality. According to this view, the color of one's skin or one's race or ethnic identity does not matter because this view says we live in a post-racial society. That is a society that has moved beyond race. We had a black president after all. Colorblindness urges then that humans need to look beyond skin color because treating people equally And ignoring their race or ethnicity, they argue, will lead to a more equal society and less racist churches. In my view, the idea of colorblindness, however, is an utter impossibility in a racialized society that has, in fact, in part built itself upon racialization, right? Every system, every structure, and our churches, Southern Baptist Convention, for example, was built upon the backs in part of enslaved black people because their black skin was not white. As I've argued elsewhere, colorblindness, you still with me? We're getting to the gospel in a moment, but we've got to start here. Because the gospel's not colorblind. As I've argued elsewhere, colorblindness actually perpetuates white supremacy. 
and makes us apathetic and blind to racial injustices. This idea also denies the racialized experiences of black and brown people by suggesting to them that their racialized narratives are false because they don't agree with the counter-narratives of majority white culture. However, the racist ideology of white superiority that created the historical impetus for slavery placed non-white people, and particularly blacks, in a negative light from this country's beginning. Is it stinging yet? You can't know the solution until you know the problem, right? As you all know, black people were ripped apart from their families, enslaved, lynched, sprayed with water hoses, beaten with clubs, clubs, given separate bathrooms and water fountains, and were forced to live in a society where everything and everyone reminded them of their so-called racial inferiority to whites. Blacks also had to endure dehumanizing names like coon or the N-word or boy simply because their black bodies were not white. Christian congregations that affirm colorblindness grossly fail those black and brown people who are in their communities and in their churches. Black and brown Christians suffer when they experience racialized forms of racism, even in Christian spaces. And evangelical churches, you still with me? Evangelical churches deepen those racialized wounds when they suggest from their pulpits, in their classrooms, in their books, in their institutions, in their sermons, in their Sunday school classes, or in personal conversations, that the suffering of black and brown people because of their race is not real. Now, there are really many reasons why I think Christians are confused about this issue. Let me give you two quick reasons, still part of my introduction. Number one, a misunderstanding of race. And number two, a misunderstanding of the gospel. First, race, very quickly. Many Christians, unfortunately, continue to think that race is about biology instead of ideology. Race is not about biology, it's about ideology. It's not about DNA. Race in the American experience, right, in the colonial experience, was an ideological social construct that existed for the purpose of privileging and prioritizing power within one group, namely those who were not enslaved Africans. Second, a misunderstanding of the gospel. Many Christians often insist that the gospel is only about individual salvation. I am sick and tired of listening to these little narrow definitions of the gospel. The gospel is both vertical and horizontal, and it's also cosmological. God is not only about the business of saving you and giving you a Jesus moment. He's also about the business of restoring everything that Adam has lost, folks. Everything. 
It's about redeeming the cosmos. So in this lecture, I want to argue the concept of the unification of all things and all people in Christ, anti-racism, social justice, compassion, and reconciliation are gospel issues. But first, three preliminary remarks. I told you I was a professor. Number one, a word about approaching these conversations from the Bible. The Bible should be the starting point in our conversation about reconciliation for Bible-believing Christians. God's original creation, as the story tells us, was in perfect harmony. God called his creation good, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Humans were in right relationship with God and with each other and with the cosmos prior to the fall. They enjoyed the fruit of the ground without thorns and thistles. But when sin entered creation, it destroyed the unity of God's creation and shattered everyone's relationship with God and with each other. It's no surprise when sin entered the cosmos, the first narrative you get is murder, right? Genesis chapter 4. Sin introduced both physical and spiritual death. An example of this spiritual death in the real world is human depravity. All human beings are dead in trespasses and sins. The sin of Adam and Eve and God's universal curse of them because of their sin resulted in the shattering of human relationships and the shattering of the harmony within creation. Human transgression also resulted in a universal curse that fragmented and devastated everything. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. As a result, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all complicit in Adam's transgression, right? We sin in Adam and we sin. (laughs) He is our federal head and we gladly embrace him as our daddy, right? And we live out our daddy's transgression by committing Acts of transgression. You still with me? Do you need me to calm down? (laughs) One way we fall short of God's glory is by the way we treat others. And our sin often results in broken relationships and in broken systems. Adam's transgression not only affected our horizontal relationship, it affects systems. And if you don't believe that, you don't understand total depravity or the power of sin. In the Old Testament, we see this relational brokenness illustrated in Cain's murder of his brother Abel. Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. We also see this relational brokenness in the various factions in the churches in the New Testament. For example, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. And we ultimately see human brokenness in personal relationships through the efforts of human beings. Think about this. To execute God's son. 
the greatest injustice of all, right? As a result of broken individual relationships with God, broken relationships with one another, and the brokenness in the cosmos and its systems, God must act to restore or reconcile this brokenness to himself and to unify all things and all people in Christ. He must act to crush the seed of the serpent through the seed of the woman by unifying all things and all people through Jesus. Thus, Christians need to understand that the entire world, the entire cosmos, not just black people and white people, But the entire cosmos needs to be reconciled in at least three ways. First, humans need to be reconciled to God. Second, humans need to be reconciled to each other. And third, the entire cosmos needs to be redeemed from the curse. And we as Christians must begin this conversation by surrendering to the authority of the Bible. Listening to the gospel and listening to what both say about God's plan for cosmological redemption. Second preliminary point. A word about approaching reconciliation and race as Bible-believing Christians. And I'll be quick here because I don't want to steal anyone's thunder in the next few lectures. But Christians, yes, just start this conversation with the Bible But we must also critically work to understand what race is. The origins of race and modern racial reasoning are complex. But race in the American or colonial in the American experience is a social construct. It's a biological fiction but a social fact. It's not like gender. Gender is biological. Race is ideological. You understand that? God created the human race. Racists created race. Cis. God created the human race. Racists created races. The first place where whiteness emerges as a construct in the American experience is in the context of Europeans homogenizing themselves into one race to distinguish themselves from quote-unquote enslaved Africans who were heathen, they thought, and didn't have souls. And every structure in place as a result of that construct existed to enslave and subjugate subjugate black people to the idea, oops, of whiteness. I'm going to keep going. So you need to understand what it is we're fighting against to win the fight. White supremacy is not simply blowing up churches and murdering people. It's an ideological evil that believes that white people are superior to black people. And by the way, you have racism by intent and racism by consequence. And we even inherited those consequences. Even if you don't have any individual hostility in your hearts, Toward black people. I'll give you one example. It's no surprise why the evangelical movement is largely a white dominated movement in America. You can't separate evangelicalism in this country from white supremacy. It doesn't mean all evangelicals were white supremacists, there were black evangelicals too. Charles Octavius Booth, born into slavery, a black man. 
But the evangelical movement is as much a cultural movement as it is a theological movement. That's why it's so hard for black folk to buy into a lot of stuff that evangelicals are saying about race. You follow what I'm saying? we got to know what we're fighting against. When we go to the Bible, we got to know what we're fighting against with the Bible. And we can't just offer these generic slogans anymore. Those days are over. And then third, preliminary comment. Still with me? A word about the reconciling power of the gospel. The gospel creates both vertical and horizontal reconciliation. The gospel also demands that Christians pursue horizontal reconciliation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, Romans 1.16. Paul summarizes Jesus' cross and resurrection as the first important matters of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. Jesus' death declares not guilty, justifies sinners by faith in Christ. Jesus died for us to make us right with God, Romans chapters 3 and 4. As you know, we call this justification. God declares sinners to be not guilty, to be in the right because of Christ's death for their sins and their union with Christ. God reckons to their account, to the account of sinners, the righteousness of Jesus by faith. Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. So his death and resurrection are foundational to the sinner's right standing with God. Because all are sinners, everyone needs to be justified. And we all likewise need to be reconciled to God first and to be reconciled to each other secondly. Jesus' blood and resurrection emancipate all different kinds of sinners from the penalty of their sin. His redemption and reconciliation is for all people without distinction, all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God, through the work of Jesus on the cross, is now the God of both Jew and Gentile. Not just Israel, but Louisville, Kentucky, too. And San Antonio, Texas, too. Through his death on the cross, God was pleased to reconcile himself and to reconcile, or rather to reconcile to himself all things in heaven and on earth by making peace through his cross, Colossians 1.20. Jesus reconciles in his body by his death on the cross those who were once alienated from and hostile toward God to present us blameless if we continue in the faith, Colossians 1 verses 21 to 22. His work of reconciliation with God enables us to live in a hot pursuit of reconciliation and Christian unity in community with each other. He did not die for us so that we can sit around and talk about how saved we are. He saved us to live out the reality of what God has done for us in Christ in the power of the Spirit. Jesus' death also delivers us from the present evil age. 
Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. And from the curse of the law, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. His death gives to the various groups for whom he died the spirit, Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. So factions, quarrels, divisions, racism, nationalism, ethnocentrism, and other social vices are manifestations, manifestations not of the spirit, but of the present evil age. Love and the pursuit of unity are the work of the spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 22. Jesus' death and resurrection then delivers sinners united to him by faith from the present evil age, which is marked by disunity, division, factions, and a curse. Think about this. Think about this. Racism in our country exists because racism is part of the present evil age. You can't kill racism with natural weapons. You need a bloody Jesus who resurrects from the dead. And spirit-empowered Christians who go after that reconciliation in Christ with intensity. Christians redeemed by Christ's blood and walking in the spirit will therefore inherit God's future kingdom, Galatians 5 verse 21. The kingdom of God in Galatians is a reference to the new heavens and the new earth, which Paul calls new new creation in Galatians 6.15, and which John identifies as the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven in Revelation 21, citing Isaiah 65 verses 17 through 15. We can also think of this new creation, and hear it clearly, as cosmological renewal. God's future kingdom has already invaded the world and was inaugurated by his son, Jesus Christ, when he preached the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God, as one scholar says, is about a person, Jesus, a people, Jews and Gentiles in Christ, and a place, the entire world. The kingdom of God is already here, but not yet fully realized. This is one reason why the New Testament speaks of the kingdom as both a present reality and a future hope. The future kingdom is currently experienced in the here and now. Hear this carefully. In the here and now. And in real time and space by Christians from every tongue, every tribe, every people who have the spirit. We've already begun to taste the kingdom as we look around and we see red and yellow, black and white, all precious in his sight, walking in the spirit. It's a foretaste of the future kingdom that has invaded this world now. And God wants us in the spirit as we exemplify the future kingdom now to pursue reconciled community with each other. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17 to chapter 5 verse 21 for example. And one aspect of this obedience is anti-racist and social justice work grounded in the redemption of the cosmos because of Jesus' death 
and resurrection. Christians are created by faith, recreated by faith, as children of Abraham, filled with the indwelling presence and power of the Spirit. We are bound for the kingdom of God and experience a foretaste of that kingdom right now. Now, I want to develop these truths further, exegetically and theologically. So now I'm coming to the primary bone or primary uh, part of my lecture. A couple of texts. Romans 3, verses 24 through 30. I want to develop these truths exegetically, theologically. You still awake? Romans 24, 324 to 40, or to 30, excuse me. There is no 40. (laughs) Jesus' death, resurrection, and justification by faith are the foundation underneath spirit-empowered, gospel-centered, anti-racist work. In Romans 3, 24 through 30, and be looking at the text with me, Paul states that Jesus' death justifies sinners by faith in Christ, declares not guilty. In 3.24 through 30, Paul connects justification by faith with his blood. In verse 24 and verse 25, he asserts that God justifies sinners by faith because he offered Jesus to die for their sins. In 3.23 through 40, Paul states, all sinners must be freely declared to be in the right by God's redemption. Two metaphors. One is forensic justification, and the other is economic, namely redemption. The blood of Jesus Christ purchased the justification that we experience by faith, which is why Paul can say, you're justified not by works, but you're justified by the redemption through Jesus, a Jewish man, not European, right? A Jewish man. I thought I would get a couple of amens when I said not European. I was doing it myself. Amen! <laughs> Jesus probably looked more like me than Ric Flair, right? In Romans 3, 323 to 24, Paul states, all sinners must be freely justified. And then he emphasizes that justification is God's gracious gift that comes to all people freely. Because of his blood and resurrection, Romans 4.25. He connects in verses 21 through 22, justification with redemption, as I've already said, but also with the idea of bloody sacrifice in verse 25. Your translation, if you're reading the ESV, in verse 25, says propitiation. The NIV says sacrifice of atonement. I think the idea here is, is that Jesus on the cross is satisfying God's wrath against our sin, and he's also providing a means by which our sins are forgiven. You can't be declared to be in the right if your sins aren't forgiven, and you can't be declared to be in the right if God doesn't satisfy his wrath. The love of God and the wrath of God kiss each other in the cross of Jesus. And he is exonerating us through his son's death by faith. Yes, this redemption is exclusively for all, without ethnic distinction. Yeah. 
who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is why Paul boldly affirms that God is the justifying God of both Jews and Gentiles who have faith in Jesus. Again, ethnic, no ethnic distinction. Hear this carefully. I don't know where you all are on the atonement. I wrote a book called For Whom Did Christ Die? He died for all people without ethnic distinction. He died for all people without ethnic distinction, which means he died, in my view, for elect Jews and Gentiles. All people without ethnic distinction. Yet this redemption is exclusively only for those who have been justified freely by faith, by God's grace through the redemption in Christ Jesus. And God upheld the integrity of his justice by satisfying his wrath and the cross of Jesus on behalf of the Jewish and Gentile sinners who are justified, reconciled, and saved by Jesus' blood and resurrection. Romans 5, 6, 10. In Romans 3, 28 through 30, Paul expresses that God justifies, and I'll say it again, Jews and Gentiles by faith. Jew and Gentile are ethnic categories, folks. They are ethnic categories. God sees ethnicity. Why do you think that the Bible says tongues and tribes and peoples and nations, right? He died for black and brown and white and American and Middle Eastern and Jewish. And he died for Egyptian, right? He died for people of particular ethnic groups. And the diversity of that atonement brings him more glory than if he died for everybody from the same race. This then leads into Paul's argument in Romans 5 through 8, where he begins to talk about hope in the context of cosmological renewal. Romans chapter 8, right? Verses 18 and following. And then it further leads into Romans chapter 12. You know, Romans chapter 12 could, I don't, I don't entirely agree with some scholars on this, but it could possibly be the very point of the first 11 chapters. <laughs> To tell these Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome how to live in reconciled harmony with each other. Stop bickering over food. Love one another and serve one another. Watch this. Justification by faith and sanctification are different. But they're both soteriological realities. The God who justifies is the God who gives you the spirit and empowers you to live in reconciled harmony. In other words, it's not optional for you to care about justice. It's not optional for you to care about the poor and the oppressed. It is a gospel imperative. You live like a living sacrifice. What does that mean? You just read your Bible and pray? First century Christians couldn't read their Bibles and pray. They didn't have crossway, right? <laughs> Next, I want to say a word about Galatians. I have 50 minutes in my lecture. I'm gonna, I have 36, I'm at 36 minutes now. I think I have 50 minutes. Is that right? 50 minutes or 45? Which is it? 45? 50. Okay, good. 
Galatians, turn there. Let me say a word about Galatians. I just spent five years of my life writing a commentary on Galatians. In my view, Paul is dealing with ethnic issues in Galatians. And the ethnic issue is a soteriological issue. Here's what's happening in Galatia. What appears to be Jewish teachers entered into the churches of Galatia. And they were telling these Gentile Christians that if they wanted to be part of Abraham's family, they had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Their faith in Jesus was not enough is what the opponents argued. And the reason they argue that is because the Bible says if you are part of Abraham's family, you got to get circumcised, Genesis 17. Paul wrote, I think, Galatians to say to these Galatians, everything you need to be part of Abraham's family, you have in Christ because you have the Spirit. In other words, he writes to defend his gospel. He does not want the Galatians to turn away from his gospel. And his gospel is focused not on Jewish identity. It's focused on in Christ identity. And he's pushing against these Jewish teachers who are trying to colonize these Gentile Christians ethnically with Jewish stuff. And that's a soteriological issue. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, and chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, Paul states that Jesus died to deliver us, Jews and Gentiles, from the present evil age and to redeem us from the curse of the law. It's interesting in Galatians. It's so interesting. When Paul talks about the death of Jesus for us, he emphasizes Jesus' death for us not so that he would deliver us from God's wrath. That's Romans but so that he would deliver us from the present evil age, which is dominated by sin, a curse, the law, and demons. His death, chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, also gives to us the blessing of Abraham, which is the Spirit. His death and resurrection distribute the blessing of the Spirit to all Jews and Gentiles who have faith in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And the gift of the Spirit to Jews and Gentiles enables us to walk in the Spirit as opposed to the lust of the flesh. You cannot walk in the Spirit without the Spirit, right? You cannot have the Spirit unless Jesus died and resurrected from the dead. Dead Jesus, no Spirit. Resurrected Jesus, you all get the Spirit, Acts chapter 2, by faith. And the exhortation to walk in the Spirit is an exhortation to live out the reality of what God has done for us and the cross and the resurrection. And one step in the Spirit is love. To contextualize it, anti-racism, social justice. We should be embarrassed as Christians that the world thinks about these things more than we do. Jesus himself says when he preached in the gospel of Luke, he's coming to deliver the oppressed and the poor. And that's the gospel, folks, and and Luke's gospel. Poverty is complex. But one reason people are poor, I would argue, is because of injustice. 
And all injustices are part of the present evil age. So we get the Spirit. And we're empowered to walk in the Spirit. And if we walk in the Spirit, we will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5 verse 21, if we don't walk in the Spirit, we will not. If you fulfill the lust of the flesh, Paul says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the same people he just said, you're justified by faith. Here's my point. Justification does not give you an excuse to be spiritually lethargic. It doesn't give you an excuse to be apathetic to injustice. Justification provides the basis upon which you are now empowered by the Spirit to live in step with the Spirit and to pursue harmony with people. And when I say pursue harmony, it doesn't just mean getting together in a room. You don't need Jesus for this, right? Basketball can do this. You need the Spirit and Jesus to love one another. And loving one another means, in part, Galatians 5, verse 22, that we're not selfish. <laughs> and I would also argue it means we sacrifice and leverage our privilege and our power to help those who are marginalized and vulnerable. That's gospel stuff. Jesus became poor so that we might become rich. He's <laughs> leveraging his privilege, folks. And we, the people for whom Jesus died, consist of some from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Red and yellow, black and white, all precious in his sight, recreated, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, into a new race filled with many different races. As Revelation 5, 9, and 10 says, quote, and they sang a new song. By saying you are worthy to take the book and to open the seals because you were slain and have purchased for God by your blood. And I love this line. Some from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And you made them for our God to be a kingdom and priest. End quote. Some of those folks are immigrants. We're all immigrants, right? If you love Jesus and you love the cross and the resurrection, if if you're justified by faith, you ought not... To speak about the immigrant as though the immigrant is an animal instead of an image bearer. Jesus was an immigrant. Going to Africa. Egypt, right? It's Africa. (laughs) Fleeing Herod's wrath. Didn't speak English. You notice something about Revelation 5.9? God builds his kingdom by the blood of Jesus Christ. Shed for Jews and Gentiles. And makes those for whom Jesus died from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation into a kingdom of priests. 
which means they are the people of God who live in the presence of God and who have access together as a unified people in the kingdom of God in a glorified and renewed cosmos. Because of justification by faith, we therefore have the Spirit, and we can walk in the Spirit, and we are transformed. Hear this very carefully, because I think many Christians get this wrong. When God transforms us, he does not erase our ethnic identities. I'm still an African-American, brown-skinned man in Christ as I was outside of Christ. But I'm a new kind of black man, transformed by the Spirit. You don't lose your accent when you come to faith in Jesus. You don't just start speaking English all of a sudden if you came to this country speaking another language. You're transformed and not erased. Five applications. Not erased is what I said. Five applications. And then I have 12 exhortations. But I might have to skip some of them. First quick application. Jesus' blood conquers the power of sin and death. He disarms the devil. He absorbs the wrath of God. He delivers us from the present evil age. And the reality that we have in Christ, rooted in his death and resurrection, the reality of being justified... And receiving the Spirit flows out of what God has done for us in Jesus. We don't create that. Second, his death reconciles Jews and Gentiles into a reconciled community. Third, and this will be the last one that I give. I want to hit the exhortations. Christians. Because of what God has done for us in Christ, should pursue relentlessly gospel justice. Twelve exhortations. Number one, understand the whole gospel. To understand the whole gospel means you need to understand the whole Bible, right? You read the Bible. It's a biblical theology of the gospel. The gospel doesn't start in Matthew. It starts in Genesis. At least that's what Paul says. Second, live multi-ethnic lives. You want to care about compassion and justice? Live multi-ethnic lives. Because if you only live around people who never experience marginalization, then you're never going to lean into social justice. I am shocked to the degree that many of my white brothers and sisters don't even have any real relationship with black or brown people. Also shocked to the, that there are many white evangelical institutions, seminaries, training people for ministry who never put before those seminary students black and brown authors. Live multi-ethnic lives. Read Frederick Douglass. Read Ida B. Wells. Read Charles Octavius Booth. Don't just read Gruden. Grudem. Read Booth. 
doing systematic theology as a freed slave for black people in the South. Plain theology for plain people. Eat that and love it. As this freed slave talks about providence for ordinary people. From the bottom up, not from the top down like I do in my office. Writing books about the death of Jesus. Third, labor to understand race. You can't speak into what you don't understand. And by the way, being black doesn't mean you understand. (laughs) There are black folk who aren't woke. You can tweet that. (laughs) Understanding race is something we must work to do. It's complicated. You can't speak gospel and theology into a situation about which you don't understand. That's why I, that's why I wish more, more people would speak less and listen more on this issue. You have pastors and pulpits with voices who are saying things that are nonsensical, that are hurting people because they don't understand. I have a bunch more here, but look, let me give you one more. And I'm done. Ask the Spirit to have his way. Let me tell you something. If you don't feel this in your bones, you're going to leave here unchanged. You got to feel this in your bones. The Spirit creates this in your heart. You got to ask the Spirit to awaken you to the injustices, to awaken you to God's vision for the cosmos. This keeps me up at night. I want a God-breathed, multi-ethnic, spirit-empowered experience in my church. And I want to lean in to injustice and speak into that and use my privilege in ways that will build up the kingdom. But I need God's help. And if I don't ask the Spirit, you know, it's easy for me as a black man with a PhD to play my black privilege card and go on with my business and just do my thing and forget about those who are marginalized. But that's not the gospel. So you ask the Spirit to have his way. Amen. Let's pray. God help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the EFCA Theology Podcast. You can find more episodes by searching EFCA Theology Podcast in any podcast app or on the web at efca.org slash podcast.